2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. Hey, I'm Christian Sager, and I'm Joe McCormick. and we're all three gathering for this one uh, once more because the uh, the summer reading episode's kind of a tradition with uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, where we we highlight uh, some interesting books that we've read, are reading, that are that we're looking to read, uh, stuff that uh, may or may not appeal to uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind listeners. Might make for some good beach reading, some intelligent beach reading, if uh, if if that's your thing. Uh, so, yeah.
3: I think it's also probably a good opportunity for the audience to get to know Joe and I a little bit better, too, kind of what our interests are and and perhaps uh, uh, some parts of our personalities that maybe haven't come through yet in episodes about things like stigmata and glass uh, mind conditions. Uh, like you don't already know what kind of a creep
1: I am. I do, but the audience doesn't. <laughs> that's what this is about: ex- exposing our um, our inner secrets and creepiness uh, to the listeners, and you know, it tends to result in a lot of uh, cool conversations with listeners because uh, either, either either they've read the books that uh, that we're talking about and have some feedback, or they have some recommendations based on uh, some of what we're chatting about. So uh, I, I look forward to all that interaction.
3: Yeah, that's exactly what I was was hoping for out of this: was that we'd get um, some nice engagement and conversations going with the listeners, and that they could possibly recommend. Recommend some stuff back to us as well. You can contact us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, where we are Blow the Mind, mm-hmm. uh, or you can uh, write us at Blow the at HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you thought about, you know, the recommendations we're about to give here, and let us know what your recommendations are based on what we tell you. Maybe you've got something that you can tell us about. Uh, that the, the one of the three of us, or all three of us, will want to dive into.
1: Yeah, and inevitably, there are going to be questions about the titles. Uh, you know, What was that book you mentioned? How do you spell the last name of that author? We're going to make sure that on the landing page for this episode, we'll have all the books that we spe- specifically call out here, uh, as well as links to where you can obtain them.
0: You know, getting into choosing books for this episode, one of the things I noticed was how little I've been reading the ideal kind of book to talk about on stuff to blow your mind in the past couple years. What do you mean? I don't know. I I feel like, uh, you know, what do I want to give this audience? I want to give them something very like strange science fiction or something like that. And I I haven't been getting into that much lately. I mean, I still love it, but just haven't been reading it. Yeah. I
3: I could see that, but I go through phases with content like that. I think, I mean, uh, you're going to find out today that I'm obviously in a big horror phase, which is, Probably no surprise to anyone who's <laughs> familiar with the stuff that I do outside of House Stuff Works, but yeah,
1: um, I I think that the, that stuff ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. For my own part, I I you know we we moved offices here at House Stuff Works. We used to be located up in uh, in Buckhead, and now we're more in Central Atlanta at mm. uh, Pond City Market. So we went from being like a, a a little short walk and like a forty minute train ride from my house to being just a ten minute car ride. Yeah. So I really lost a lot of the, like, core reading time (laughs) that I had set aside, you know, because when you're on the train, or at least when I was on the train, like, there was nothing else I could do but read the book, you know, and so there were no distractions other than, you know, some weirdo on the train doing God knows what, but (laughs) aside from that, there were no distractions. I could just plug into my, my music. Pull out a book and uh, and read, and so I've been having I've been, I've been kind of struggling to find my key reading times again. Yeah, in my in my uh, schedule.
3: Yeah, I still ride the train and I take the shuttle here. So, but I've haven't been reading as much, but I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks. In fact, one of the books I'm going to talk about today, I listen to entirely as an audiobook. Ah, see, so I need to get back into that for me.
1: Yeah.
0: I actually like a lot of audiobooks. I don't think any of the ones I'm gonna talk about today I experienced via audiobook, but I'm a big fan of them cause I, I, I don't know, I, I do all the cooking in our house and stuff like that and it's good to be able to listen to a book while you cook. Uh-huh. Yeah.
3: Yeah, uh this is not related to any of the stuff I'm going to recommend today. I've told this story to Joe before, but one of the audiobooks I listened to in the last couple of years was Cormac McCarthy's The Road. And I awesome. listened to it entirely while I was exercising. And let me tell you, there is n- no... There is not a more depressing book to listen to while you're running.
0: No, but oh, it, yeah. it makes you want to be in good shape, so you don't become part of the supplementary band of catamites.
3: Yeah, exactly. I mm-hmm. definitely was thinking about how I was getting, you know, prepared for the
1: dystopian apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a great book. I, I it loved, is. Uh, yeah, it's pretty much I, everything. I Fort love Martin it also. McCarthy. All right, well, let's uh, let's dive into it. Uh, we're going to start with a round of our nonfiction recommendations, and then we're going to skip to our fictional recommendations. So. Uh, I'm going to kick off here by recommending a book by Douglas J. Inland, uh titled Animal Weapons, The Evolution of Battle. Uh, this came out, I believe, earlier this year or the end of last year. Uh, so it's a new book, and it's it's really exceptional. It's, it's well-illustrated and it deals... Essentially, it's a, a comparison between the evolution of organic defense systems and man-made weapons. So it looks at The arms race of evolution, with a a particular focus on the economics of evolution. So, you know, asking questions like, at what point is a crab claw too large? And, uh, (laughs) and, 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 uh, And the other side of the coin is, at what point is an arms budget too ridiculous? Uh, and there's a chapter at the end that deals with mass destruction, you know, which is more of an exclusive domain of, of human weaponry, uh, something you're not going to find in the natural world. Uh, and that's where the comparison kind of breaks down, and the, and the author discusses it. But um, but it's a, it's a fascinating read. I mean, particularly if you're interested, if you're interested in biology, if you're interested in warfare and uh, and, and weaponry, and if you're interested in, in fictional monsters, like like I am, because yeah. um, you know we, we we love to throw outrageous. Uh, animal weapons that are monster designs. And it's it's always a fun exercise to to think, well huh well why why would that creature have a claw that big? What yeah. would things gotta off? pay for that? Yeah, because that's the thing. Weapons uh as he discusses at length in the book, weapons are always expensive, especially state of the art weapons. Whether yeah. you're talking about a medieval knight, if you're talking about an aircraft carrier, if you're talking about an exceptionally large Crab claw or a set of antlers, because those things end up requiring uh, resources from the organism. They open the the organism up for uh, for more damage, for more infections, and uh, you know, and sometimes the, the species goes bankrupt because the the weapons budget is too large. Yeah, I think it's fascinating thinking about
0: some of the feedback loops that can be created in in evolutionary development, especially because if you go back far enough, you can trace it to maybe a single random event, Mm -hmm. you know, that one organism acquired a mutation that gave it a slight edge in some strange way that wasn't usual in that ecosystem before, and then suddenly every other species that competes with it had to keep up.
3: Yeah. So I'm wondering, because I know you're a big Grant Morrison fan, have you read We Three before?
1: No, that's that's one I need to borrow from someone at some
3: point maybe you can borrow it for me but um, it's related to this topic directly in that it is about house pet animals that are weaponized by the u.s government Uh, they're intelligent right yeah they're well i mean they're a little (laughs) above average intelligence for Mm -hmm. you know it's a dog a cat and a rabbit but they're also like implanted with I guess cybernetics, and they wear sort of like exoskeletons, <laughs> and they so this is
0: not the natural arms, right? <laughs> no, this is
3: not real, this is sci fi, yeah. But it is, um, uh, it's a very emotional, uh, comic book. Oh,
1: nice. yes, yeah. Cool. yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. I will definitely have to check that out. Um, yeah, I mean, the this book I definitely recommend, it's a very readable, uh, you know, it's not. Not too thick for the for the average, or even you know the the advanced science reader, and uh, just like every chapter, you can back actually you can just spot read this thing if you want. You know, mm-hmm. you can just set it back on the toilet tank and and pull it out whenever you you just want a little bit of uh, of mind blowing science. I mean, stuff like um, uh, he spends a lot of time with stag beetles and and dung uh-huh. beetles, you know, because they have a lot of of, uh, of weaponry that they've evolved on their heads for fighting. And he he mentions at one point that uh, in some uh, male dung beetles, you actually see uh, the diminishment of the eyes, uh, so that they can grow these elaborate um, uh, fighting mechanisms. So, Interesting. So the the weapons actually like limit the sight of the the organism in a very real way. That, uh, that kind of in the
3: same way that like wearing a great helm would would limit your sight as yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Or that wearing armor limits your mobility. Right. all all of these things come with a cost, even if it's just a cost of uh, resource investment. I had a feeling that going into this episode,
3: we were going to come up with some future episode topic ideas. And this sounds like a good one.
1: Yeah, it's I think in the past, I touched on this book a little bit in an episode about antlers and one about dung beetles. But Mm -hmm. I mean, it's. It's a great text to have around because it covers pretty much everything. It's just a wonderful dive into the topic of of animal and human weaponry. So I
0: recommend it. All right. Well, for my nonfiction selection, I'm going to bring up a book that's especially relevant to this podcast because we talked about it in uh, a couple of the episodes Robert and I did, the ones about techno-religion. And this book is The Remarkable Life of John Murray Spear, Agitator for the Spirit Land by John... Benedict Bucher and I apologize to John Benedict Bucher for saying this but every time I say his name I want to say John Carl Buchler who is the director of Friday the 13th part 7.
1: Wow that's that's a very specific <laughs> you don't uh, know that this guy did also
3: what. direct Friday the 13th part 7 under a pseudonym
1: Well that could
0: be I mean it's close enough they might as well be the he same might guy. want to separate his career. Uh, no, this guy, as far as I know, has not directed any slasher movies. Okay. But, but a good, like, spiritualist uh, slasher movie might be. Might be worth pursuing. Oh yeah, that could be really cool. But I I thought this this story was just fascinating because this is a this is a biography of this guy John Murray Spear, who we talked about in the techno religion episodes. And John Murray Spear was an activist, a reformer, a, you know, a, an agent of political and social change. In most cases, for the better, he advocated some really progressive topics for his time in the, in the early to mid eighteen hundreds. He was for Women's rights, he was an abolitionist against slavery, he protested against racism, and so he was in a lot of ways a really great guy for his time, but it's an interesting study in how even people with really admirable intentions can get swept up in bizarre belief systems, where John Murray Spear ended up becoming a spiritualist. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so he began to think that he was a medium who could channel the spirits from beyond, and he he thought he could deliver the words of Benjamin Rush, giving lectures on anatomy. And these were subjects he didn't know anything about. So was this, uh, like many spiritualists at that time, did
3: he try to monetize this in some way? Like, did he... Advertise it as if, like, you know, pay him ten bucks and he'll tell you the secrets of the universe. Um,
1: I didn't get that no, feeling as well, not right. really. He seemed I'm, genuine, I mean,
0: if you will. <laughs> Okay. I mean, maybe, I don't know, if you want to be cynical, you could maybe, because he did draw people to him through this. Like, he, mm-hmm. he definitely led some projects and had some followers based on messages he was supposedly getting from the spirit world. But I no, I don't get the sense that it was just kind of a crass cash grab. I I get the sense that he was a true believer. Yeah,
1: yeah. He seemed to really invested in these these projects. You know, I mean, it's easy to think of his key project, which I'm sure you're about to discuss, as, right. uh, as kind of an art installation. So you can almost imagine him his, him as a uh, like a gallery owner who is just s- super committed to. Uh, to curating the the the, the, uh, the main art installation in this gallery. Okay. Um, and and less concerned with actually selling
3: tickets. The spiritualists of that time that I was thinking of are more like kind of, uh, I, th- I think Joe and I have talked about this off-air before, about like water diviners or oil mm-hmm, diviners, mm-hmm. Uh, and that they would, you know, uh, obviously like... Uh, claim that spirits were able
0: to tell them where water or oil could be found. but No, John Murray Spear and his followers were more into the idea that spirits could tell you how to build a machine that would save the world and become the new robot messiah. Oh, so he's yeah. our bunk, Buckminster Fuller. Yeah, pretty much,
1: yeah. This is in the, in the realm of spiritualist, uh, he was, he was a big thinker. He was okay. definitely right. an outside the box thinker.
0: Yeah. And so this, this led to the new motor project, which we talk about at length in our episodes on right. uh, techno religion. And if you haven't heard those, you can go back and check those out for the fuller description. But basically, he and a bunch of people got together and tried to build a machine based on instructions from spirits. That he thought would bring about a new era and sort of change the human's relationship with the spirit world and bring about a, a positive end of days in a way. So this book that's about him, um, how how did
3: you find like you know the structure, the prose? Was it? Is it a dense biography or is it, um, you know, a readable kind of page turner?
0: No, it's not like highly dramatized. So he, he doesn't make it into a historical novel or anything. I get uh-huh. the sense it's more kind of an academic historian's work. But okay. that doesn't mean it's uninteresting just because the story of John Murray Spear is so weird yeah. and so fascinating just in in the actual details of what happened that I, I think even the non-historian reader would be interested in this. Cool. That sounds fascinating. Yeah, what's on the artwork there? Uh, yeah, the cover has this—I don't know—kind of creepy-looking army of cherubim uh, surrounding what looks like a sewing machine table.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, Seems to highlight the <laughs> themes. <laughs> yeah, there aren't a lot of uh, great pictures of uh, of John Murray Spear's uh, key creation. So, uh, I, I don't think there's a single photograph of it. No, I, just th- the illustrations. Best we could find are a couple
0: of illustrations. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert, it looks like a table with a bunch of stuff glued to it.
1: Yeah, I think we described in the podcast what is a is, a, is, a, is a Dalek and um, a coffee table mated. This would be the offspring.
0: Yeah, uh, pretty much. And then you hung that with some Christmas ornaments. Yeah.
3: <laughs> well, that's actually a good segue into the book that I... Uh, Chose to talk about today for my nonfiction selection, which is, uh, it's an ebook by Warren Ellis called Cunning Plans. Huh. And, uh, Warren Ellis, for those of you not familiar, is primarily known as an English comic book writer. He's written a couple novels and he's also done some commentary and columns about society and technology and sort of where we're going and how they're merging. Uh, and this ebook, which I think it's only like 99 cents on Amazon or something like that, is uh, a collection of talks and presentations that he's given on a variety of topics over the last, I don't know, maybe five or six years. One of the major categories that he covers in these talks is sort of a collision between spiritualism or magical thinking and technology and progress. Um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting, you know, set of transcripts and it reads very well, but th- here's just kind of a, a set of topics that comes up in the, in this book. He talks about futurism, the speed at which we're progressing scientifically. Uh, he, the, the, the title of the book, cunning plans comes from, uh, the tradition in England that I wasn't aware of called the cunning folk. Have you guys heard of this before? Mm. He describes it as a they were sort of like witch doctors or shaman in England at a time um, and he compares the cunning folk of that time to sort of technologists of our time.
1: Huh, interesting.
3: Um, mystical wearables is something he talks about. He also talks about Alexander Graham Bell's harmonic telegraph, the combination of magic and the digital world, why people murder each other, uh, Pop music as sort of like a, a telegraph of the future, like showing us what the future is going to become, which I think is kind of a uh, a theme that Stuff to Blow Your Mind has has had over the years. When you write about space music, on oh the yeah. Side. yeah. Uh, and he's also, you know, no surprise into hallucinogens and gardening on grave sites. I didn't. I never thought about this, but this is one of the other things he talked about. Was that uh, apparently the soil is rather rich where dead bodies are buried, oh. so it's, it's easy to grow
1: you know, even crops. In, even with like modern uh, in modern day and age, because we we tend to just completely um, cut the body off from any kind of natural. You know, if I remember correctly from the
3: from the book, it wasn't. Um, the, the grave sites that he was talking about were not like modern cemeteries. Okay. So like yeah, it was nice more old like cemeteries. mass
1: graves. Oh, oh yeah. God. okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it's not like you get your gourds from Grandpa. It's like you go find Well, mass it, it depends
3: what Grandpa exactly. was up to, I guess. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um,
0: Grandpa's crawlspace mushrooms. But this
3: is a passage <laughs> I, I'd like to read because I think, <laughs> I think that Ellis would probably like that term <laughs> Grandpa's crawlspace mushrooms.
0: Yeah. <laughs> You know, sorry, that makes me think recently Rachel and I were driving through South Carolina and Who's Rachel for the audience? My wife Rachel and I were driving through (laughs) we were driving through South Carolina and we saw a little like neighborhood community that has a name, sometimes they have names, and Uh it's called Moss Grove. Oh yeah. It's like, man, Mm. that is one letter off. Well, this is there's a passage from Ellis's book of
3: talks that I wanted to read here today because I think it kind of captures the big ideas that he's he's trying to convey in these talks and it's is very stuff to blow your mind. So this is in uh, I believe the second one. The Olympus Mons mountain on Mars is so tall and yet so gently sloped that were you suited and supplied correctly, ascending it would allow you to walk most of the way into space. Mars has a big, puffy atmosphere that's taller than ours, but there's barely anything to it at that level. 30 pascals of pressure, which is what we get in an industrial vacuum furnace here on Earth. You may as well be in space. Imagine that. Imagine a world where you can quite
1: literally walk into space. Wow, that's nice. Yeah, this was, it's kind of fun stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, that's a topic where I've, I've certainly done my share of, of reading about the... Um, Geography of Mars. Yeah, but I don't think it, think uh, it's ever been presented quite like that to me. You know? Yeah, that's one of the things I like about Ellis is that he tends to
3: take a lot of popular science type uh, information and he translates it in such a way that it just really brings a lot of kind of strangeness and wonder to
1: it. Yeah, that sounds like uh, one that would be cool to pick up. I haven't I haven't read any of his because uh, he has a uh, has a couple of novels out, right? Yeah, uh, Crooked Little Vein is one of them.
3: I can't remember the other novel's title. He was supposed to release a book called Listener, I believe, but I don't think that one came out. Hmm. But there, I noticed when I bought this that there were a couple of other 99-cent books by him available, which may be other collections of, you know, sort of his Internet ramblings and things like that. But I've always found that kind of thing interesting. In fact, I, I think I was showing you guys the other day uh, some old issues of this collection of, of of books called Bad Signal that he put out <laughs> at the uh, early 2000s that were basically his he would take these really sensationalist kind of weird science stories and then extrapolate them out a little bit further and and uh, mm. they they you know for the most part you kind of cite sources and it was stuff from new newspapers in the late 90s huh. and I think it would be sort of fascinating for us to take one or two of those and dive into them see if see if there's some meat on the bone.
1: Yeah, I loved uh, Transmetropolitan. Yeah, and that's uh, the one
3: you told me to read. Uh yeah, uh, Transmetropolitan is probably the one he's best known for. Spider
1: Jerusalem. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: yeah it's basically a sci-fi version of Hunter S. Thompson mm-hmm.
1: uh kind of writing
3: about a presidential campaign.
1: Yeah. Was that accurate? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and kind of a got a weird like Alien influence, mm-hmm. dystopian, cyberpunky, gonzo future. Transhumanism is a big theme yeah. in his
3: works. Um, I think one of the other ones I might have told you, Joe, to read is called Planetary, and that is sort of his. I think he describes it as like an archaeology of weird fiction. So he mm-hmm. goes throughout the history of sort of science fiction, weird fiction, fantasy, and explores it throughout the the um, the, the context of this narrative in Planetary.
1: You know, he was involved early on um, in the creation of the the Dead Space um, video game franchise. Oh yeah, uh, that's I, right. And I think he he hadn't he has. I don't think he's really gone on the record much for talking about like what specifically his contributions are, because I, mm-hmm. I imagine there were a lot of cooks uh, preparing that soup. But um, but I really enjoy that uh, that gaming franchise. So yeah, me too. I kind of I- like to to look at it sometime and and try and figure out. Well, what, what in this is is, is it definitely has Ellis's DNA. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I could see that. I, I had forgotten about that, but you're right. I,
1: I just played Dead Space
3: 3 last year. I oh, yeah. really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, that one was
0: fun. I've never done any of those. They're
1: survival horror science fiction games. I think you yeah. did. It. It's a wonderful you know, techno-religion uh, at the center mm-hmm. of it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. All right, so there are our three... Uh, promising nonfiction recommendations for you you know we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to dive into some fiction as well shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples
2: in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.
1: All right, we're back. And now we're going to talk a little bit about fiction. And, you know, just because it's fictional doesn't mean it's not loaded with uh, a lot of uh, mind-expanding topics, uh, a lot of of cool ideas. Uh, And that's why I... I am, I'm always drawn to the work of uh, E&M Banks. Um yeah, it's a <laughs> the recurring theme on oh, the show. Oh, I yeah. thought I said something funny. No, no, no. no, no, no. You, uh,
3: yeah, I know that you've talked about him a lot on the show before, and, and we were talking about this yesterday, that I've actually never read his work before, and so the, w- I've heard nothing but good things about him, but what I've heard is that he goes by the name Ian M. Banks when he's writing science fiction, and he's just Ian Banks, right, when he's writing sort of just literary fiction? Yes. Okay. Yeah,
1: that's... and. Um, his sci-fi, I pretty much only read his sci-fi, except for his first novel, um, The Wasp Factory. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I believe that's, that's more on the sort of literary, kind of literary horror, I would say. Okay. But uh, but for the most part, I stick to his sci-fi, especially his culture series. Um, and and I, I really think they, I tend to almost always read his books exclusively at the beach. Uh, so he's kind of my go-to beach read. So let's kind of back did. up here a second. I have never thought of you as a beach person. Yeah, well, I, you know... I'm also surprised, I'll say. I love a good walk on the beach. Um, I have to kind of be coaxed into doing all the other stuff, like actually getting in the water and all. Right. Um, and having a, a toddler certainly helps with that. But, oh, okay. Yeah. But I, I love walking on the beach. I love, you know, staring out and letting my creative juices run. Um, so uh, and, I, and I love reading at the beach. It's a good excuse to just dive into a book.
0: Well, I got to say that there are different kinds of beaches also because mm-hmm. I, I don't consider myself a beach person in terms of like happy sunny beaches with people swimming. But, but you I, went to the beach just a couple weeks ago too, didn't well, you? Well, that was a family thing. Okay. You know, you know, <laughs> You show I did up, it you show my up will. for family. Yeah. No, I mean I didn't hate it, but uh-huh. but the kind of beach I can really get behind is like the Icelandic beach, or like you <laughs> totally. know, where it's like a gray hellscape that's yeah. beautiful. Will you potentially like, hallucinate
1: things on the horizon? Yeah, you're you're likely to see a troll walking up out of the water. <laughs> well, I tend to not go quite that dark with my beaches, but I like a, a I like a, a less populated beach. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like a bunch of people sitting around sw- swigging beer and playing jimmy buffett right i like a i like a you know a fairly deserted beach i like a, like clouds in the sky but uh but i also like getting my feet in the water a little bit and, and you know some I, I prefer sand rather than painful rocks beneath me a doom metal kind of beach i guess yeah <laughs> no i don't know that makes it sound
3: like the sky is full of smog and there's like yeah. viking ships on the horizon there you go all right, so you read you're reading Ian M. Banks at the beach, or you recommend reading it there?
1: Uh, I, I mean, it works for me, but he's he's great to read anywhere. So, you know, if you want this type of science fiction journey, um, this particular book I read is the book *Accession*, which came out in '96, and it's the the fifth book in his Culture series, which. If you're not familiar with it, it's uh, essentially a post-singularity space opera that often deals with uh, the meaning of life in a post-scarcity society, the limits of utopia, machine intelligence, alien civilizations, war, horror, wonder. And he also throws in a fair bit of silliness and humor that kind of balances everything out, a kind of, you know, wry... Uh, almost kind of, it was almost like a Monty Python-esque silliness at times, and and the kind of pompous, uh, air to some of the, uh, the characters in this, uh, in this universe, which, which helps to, yeah, to balance out some of the, the heavier ideas that he plays with.
3: And he's British, right? Or he was British. He passed away last year. Yeah, he
1: died in, uh, 2013. Oh, two years ago now. Okay. But, uh, but he, he contributed a, a number of books to us before, uh, before passing, um, and uh, and the culture books aren't the only science fiction books, but they're mm-hmm. it's that's the university keeps coming back to or he kept coming back to a number of times. Yeah, it's it definitely sounds like something I need to dive into
3: at some point. My wife has recommended it as well. Yeah, yeah. the
1: weird thing about the culture series is that first of all, it's like, each book can be read on its own. It's there there's stuff that happens in the universe, mm-hmm. uh, some key events, and there's definitely a timeline. But that timeline isn't uh, doesn't reflect the order in which the books are published, and so. Technically, you can come in at any point, but then some books are better entry points than others. So I always recommend uh, The Player of Games is a great uh, first uh, culture book to read, as well as Consider Phlebas, which is the the first one that he wrote. Um, I I found Player of Games was the one that I came to first, and I found that one to be the most accessible and and is one of my my favorite books. Um, Accession, however, is very good, too, and this one deals... Uh, like all of his books, you know, there are a number of different elements going on. Uh, there's what he calls an outside context event, uh, the appear- which is the appearance of this thing they refer to as an accession. So an outside context event for the rest of us would be like if you were a member of a, you know, a, a primitive tribe uh, and you, you live on a, in some coastal environment. Uh, you know you're you're catching your fish, you're cooking them over fire, and you have all these questions about how the world works beyond you know beyond your your standard myths that have been passed on. And then you look out one day and there's say uh, you know a Spanish warship uh, mm. <laughs> out out in the harbor. That is an outside context event. the uh, the arrival of a of an advanced uh, piece of technology, an advanced civilization, the kind of thing you could not predict. and then once it is in play, you're you're kind of powerless. Uh, against whatever changes it's going to bring into your
3: world, so he's extrapolating that and imagining it into sci-fi scenarios for our future.
1: Yeah, so like in the culture, which is the, the culture, is is one of several galactic um, civilizations mm. that are in play that are in play in his world, and and this, so this is in a you know very space opera age in which. Ships are running all over the place. Artificial intelligence is extremely powerful. Uh, there are a number of elder civilizations that have... Um uh, that have sort of gone offline uh, they've sublimed uh, as uh as as uh, banks refers to it okay um, but this accession uh this accession seems to be a, an entity or or even some sort of a ship that originates outside of our universe okay so it's uh, a, a significant uh, advanced step in technology far beyond anything that uh, that any of these other civilizations um, have the power to grasp and so it it uh, it ends up playing into a couple of other scenarios there's um there's a warlike species uh, called the affront that want to take advantage of it. And then you have the the artificial intelligence minds that run the culture, and they're trying to figure out how best to respond to it, while another faction of them are trying to figure out how to exploit the scenario to uh, to deal with the affront. And then at the center of this, too, you have a, a tragic post-human love story uh, involving uh, two human characters. Um, because his, uh, his post-human characters are always so... So interesting because he, he, he deals with very human qualities, but the human qualities of the sort of human who can live for centuries, that can change uh, gender as much as they want, that can, you know, essentially start and restart their lives several times and do anything they want to uh, within this sort of semi-utopian society. So this is sort of transhumanist as well. Then, that, yes. That I'm assuming yeah. there's like an idea and the restarting
3: of the lives is something that like the mind is separate from the body in a way.
1: Um, it, yeah, at times, like there, he explores so many different possibilities in these books. Like there, there are definitely individuals who are disembodied. There are mm-hmm. individuals who are stored away. Uh, there are individuals who are, whose mind is put back into a, a new body. And then individuals in the culture tend to have, they have like a neural lace implanted in their brain that gives them all these, uh, these uh, these cybernetic uh, interface features—they mm. have the ability to to gland different properties. So if they want they want to sleep uh, without being disturbed by dreams, they just have yeah. to think about it and it happens. Oh. If they essentially want a, a powerful stimulant to rev them up, they just think about it and it happens. So they have their own okay. their own sort of pharmaceutical uh, reserves just uh, just waiting inside their head, and all they have to do is think it. That does sound utopian. Yeah. I would love for a good
0: night's sleep
3: if I just could think about it ahead of time.
0: One thing I think is really interesting there is the idea of how to make a story that's sort of post-singularity or post-utopian interesting and full Mm -hmm. of conflict. That's something I think we've often seen problems with in certain incarnations of Star Trek, for example, where people wanted to go too utopian with it and say, oh, all these petty concerns people used to have. We've grown beyond that now, but then you've got no interesting Conflict between the characters.
1: It's what that there was just that IO nine. Yeah, oh, yeah. I was going to say. So, Robert, I
3: read it, and you, uh, then I saw that you posted it to the stuff to blow your mind Facebook account. Mm-hmm. There was a. You go ahead and, and um, describe it.
1: I, it was basically stemming from uh, like a new documentary, I think that yeah. uh, Shatner's come out with. Yeah. Um, but it, it apparently the really interesting stuff deals with Roddenberry's involvement. Gene Roddenberry, the creator of the original Star Trek, his involvement with the Next Generation. Um, which it, it it sounds like he was kind of dragged into it but partially by his own ego where he yeah. didn't really want to work on another Star Trek series uh, but he also didn't want to see it happen without him <laughs> and so you, you have you have Roddenberry and uh, and his uh, key associates pushing for a really utopian vision of mm-hmm. Star Trek everything has to be perfect within the mm-hmm. Federation at any rate and then you have you know the other voices that are saying but we want. You know, we need conflict. We need these other things that are not necessarily in line with this yeah. utopian this still dream. still supposed to be a story, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the piece is written by Charlie
3: Jane Anders, who's a regular over there and one of my favorite writers at io9. And I suppose that you could go watch this documentary. In fact, I, I want to say that there might have been an embed at the link, too. But you could find it on our Facebook page or you probably search io9.com. Star Trek The Next Generation, it'll come up too.
1: Yeah, I'll put a link to it on the landing page for this episode if anyone's interested. Cool. So, again, that book is uh, Accession by Ian M. Banks. Uh, I recommend it. I recommend uh, the entire Culture series. All right, well, for my fiction selections, I didn't have anything just quite as perfect
0: as that as a fit for this show. So, I I picked just a few of the books I've read recently that really wowed me. Uh, And I guess I'm going to focus specifically on one, but I'll mention a couple others first that I've read in the past year or two that. Amazed me. One was, I actually went back and I never read a Toni Morrison book, but I read The Bluest Eye and that was, man, sad, painful, beautiful, brilliant. Uh, It was actually her first novel and I get the impression a lot more people have read uh, Beloved or later books of hers. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one of the main themes in this book is not necessarily the the external racism that happens in society, but the internalizing of uh, racialized concepts like how the young black girl in the book comes to adopt basically a white supremacist conception of aesthetics huh. that equates beauty with whiteness like her idea of what beauty is is what white girls beauty is okay and i think this is an interesting example i mean it's very sad in the book but it it, it explores the concept that our aesthetics can be charged with ideology And I think that's something that's interesting, too, maybe worth exploring on the show sometime if we haven't before, the the idea of what you find visually interesting or what you find beautiful that seems to be politically neutral, but in a lot of cases it might not be. Like what our values are can determine what looks good to us.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm of the opinion that all of culture is us just trying to make sense of the the, the sort of bombardment of chaotic information that the world presents us with, right? And no matter how you do that, it's ideological. Last night I went to a presentation of, uh, there's a theater here in town called the Fox Theater, and they were playing Ghostbusters. They were playing the original Ghostbusters, and before it, I don't know if you guys have been to the Fox or not, this is my mm. first time, they play uh, old black and white newsreels from the 1930s. Oh wow! And I was noticing... Um, there were a couple of them that were sort of celebrating, uh, female, uh, like stars of the time, uh, e- either from, you know, uh, the stage or, or, maybe the radio or something like that. But I was just noticing that, that the conception of beauty, even in the 1930s between now and then is, is so different. Um, so I think that there's certainly something to be said for the culture change between the, then.
1: You know, I haven't yeah. read the, the blue eyes book, but, um thinking back on the episodes that uh, uh, Julie and I put out earlier in the year about uh, implicit bias and racism, mm-hmm. um, that work definitely came up in some of the sources that we were looking at.
0: Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that was an amazing book. Another amazing one I want to mention is... Uh Actually, in the title, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Shabon. Yeah, this is a great book. Yeah, uh, so I've got a friend who loves Shabon and he's been mm-hmm. recommending this book to me for years, but I finally read it this See, year. See, I bet it's been recommended to me for years and I've, I've like almost read it several times. And oh, then I, man. It.
1: I, I think it's you just, would enjoy it. Yeah.
0: Oh, man, it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, I, It's an amazing epic story. It's epic in the way that, you know, the great Dickens novels are epic and mm-hmm. that, like, you're almost amazed at the end that you that the story has gone this far and and completed this arc and in many ways i think this story is interesting because it's about the genesis of storytelling mm-hmm. like it deals with h- how the contents of the stories that storytellers create can be equal parts inspiration personal obsession and just mercenary necessity and how all those things come together to make the, the canons of literature we love.
3: Yeah, I, it's been a l- while since I've read it, maybe ten years. But, um, you know, it's no secret, especially if you've just been listening to this episode, I've already mentioned two comic book writers, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm big on comic books, and part of the plot of Shabon's book is that these two guys create a comic book character called The Escapist, yes. I believe is, that, is what the name of the, the book is. Uh, and this novel itself is a... A uh, reflection of the Siegel and Schuster creation of Superman mm-hmm. and the sort of political issues that went on behind that, and the, and the sleazy business that went on behind that. Yeah, uh, and and it's also a lot about being uh, a Jewish American in that time, and yeah. and and immigration, uh, and sort of understanding again culturally, understanding your place in American society, and Superman you know, it doesn't actually really show up in this book, but the, the, uh, the Gollum does. And, yeah, and, and, and oh, good. the, the Gollum <laughs> of Prague. And you can sort of see uh, Superman and the Gollum of Prague as, like, a sort of um, metaphors for one another.
1: Oh, nice.
0: Yeah, uh, and so I can't recommend those two books enough. And then I've got one third fiction selection that I want to mention, which is The Encyclopedia of the Dead by Danilo Keish. Mm. you all ever read this? No.
1: Ooh, wait, I have.
0: Yes, this this has been recommended to me, but I have not read it. Oh, I think you'd love it, Robert. So it's called The Encyclopedia of the Dead by Danilo Kish, and Keish was a Serbian writer. He's probably more well-known among English-speaking audiences for his book, A Tomb for Boris Davidovich. But this book, uh, The Encyclopedia of the Dead, was published, I think, in 1983. Uh, the translation copyright is 1989, and the English translation was by Michael Henry Heim, and this book is fantastic, in my opinion. Yeah? It's a it's a book of strange, fantastical short stories. They're pretty much all about death in one way or another. And their fantastical elements are very much in the style of Borges. And okay. some of them are, are just so great. I want to talk about at least one of the stories. You have me at Borges. Yeah. <laughs> so the title story is The Encyclopedia of the Dead. And it tells the story of a woman who finds herself in a Swedish library overnight where she locates a copy of this book called the Encyclopedia of the Dead and it's a tome written by this religious order that makes it their duty to record every single detail about a person's life, and I mean every single detail. Every person they meet, every meal they ate, all the flowers they grew in their gardens, and then also the historical context for every period of their lives. So if you lived in World War II, the encyclopedia would also give you a complete and thorough understanding of what happened in World War II. Okay, and And these are all like... on paper, yeah. Okay. That, so, the, so there's a kind of surreal it's element. Not a digitized. There, that, <laughs> there's a sort of like impossible absurdity right. to the <laughs> world it describes. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the the narrator of this story, she finds the entry for her father, who had died just a couple months before the story takes place. And the only rule for inclusion in the Encyclopedia of the Dead is that those included, and in it cannot be included in any other encyclopedia. Interesting. Hmm. And much of the story is just the narrator trying to make notes on her father's entry before she runs out of time and has to yeah. put the book down and leave the library. But I thought this was a fascinating take, and I, I don't want to spoil too much about the story. You should just read it, but I think it's a fascinating take on the the sort of absurdity of of trying to capture human experience uh, in in language that there's no way to really tell a story completely. Mm. And then there's another story in this book that I wanted to call out. It's called Simon Magus, which is just an awesome retelling of some of the apocryphal Simon Magus legends from the... I'm unfamiliar with this. It's early Christian tradition. Simon Magus is a character that appears in the Bible. He's in the book of Acts, and he's sort of a a counter-apostle in a way, like he's... Mm -hmm. He's doing some magic tricks, and he has a confrontation oh, with Peter. Oh, yes, Magus, yes, yes. like yeah. M-A-G-U-S. Yeah. Yeah, I have heard of this guy before. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he has a confrontation with Peter. That's in the Book of Acts, but there are also apocryphal legends that didn't make it into the Bible, but uh-huh. they deal uh, in a more extensive way with with Simon Magus, and some. He, he sort of has like wizard battles with Peter that are pretty cool. Okay. And one of those legends, actually a couple of those legends, are retold in the story I, so I loved this book. I thought it was awesome. That sounds like a lot. Yeah. It and touches yeah. on the things I'm interested in. I think you guys would be into it. I'll, I'll let you out. borrow my Early copy. Christian sorcery. I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> so the wizard battle is with Peter the Apostle? In the apocryphal sources, yeah. yeah. Okay. Far
3: out. It's like a they like, Harry they, Potterization of the Bible.
0: They, they have like miracle contests and they sort of like curse each other.
1: Oh, oh, okay. Nice, nice. It kind of r- flows into some of what we were talking about in uh, the Grimoire episode we did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, um, that's
3: where I had read about mm-hmm. Simon... Uh, I, I pronounce it Magus, maybe it's wrong, but yeah. Oh, no, that's, that's where probably read about about right, it before, I, I, was that he was an inspiration yeah. for a lot of those Grimoires. I think I'm saying it the Anglicized way. Uh, Magus. <laughs> Magus. Magus. But yeah, um, he, if I remember correctly from the research for that episode... There was even some legends that he was the one who had written some of the original text for those grimoires.
1: Yeah, yeah, his and of course you end up sort of losing, losing the individual and all the myth. Uh, yeah, uh, well, lose him completely probably, but uh, but yeah, he definitely his name definitely came up a few times uh, in that episode, as I recall.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision?
2: or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is
0: here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love,
3: Okay, well, it's my turn for my fiction selection. I had two, so I feel I feel better now that you had a couple because I was a little worried that I had two. Um, the first is the audiobook that I mentioned earlier that I had listened to. It is a recent novel uh, by, I believe you pronounce her last name, Bukes, Lauren Bukes. She's a South African novelist, oh, yeah, I, I she, uh, We talked about her.
1: She wrote The Shining Girls was yes. a novel that she came out with and then something with like animals on where everyone oh, has yeah. animals is familiar zoo city zoo city that's the one i've read yeah,
3: yeah. i haven't read either Well, oh, i have read part of shining girls but not zoo city but this one is called broken monsters uh and i listened to the audiobook version of it and i will recommend to our listeners to just read the book uh the audiobook had several different actors narrating and playing the parts of the characters that are There's probably like four or five different protagonists throughout the book and it was very distracting. Mm -hmm. Uh, there were, there were points where I just stopped listening to it for, you know, a month at a time and then I would come back and, and give it a shot again. The story is great though. What she's written is fantastic. It's a contemporary murder mystery, um, sort of, you know, along the lines of that serial killer story. Thing that's kind of popular right now in fiction. Uh, the Detroit police find a dead body. That's how it begins. And it's the dead body of half of a young boy fused together to half of a deer. Um, and this book just spins out from there. It's about everything from modern adolescence as it follows the daughter of the police detective investigating this murder, social media anxiety and bullying. I really felt like uh, Bukes had finger on the pulse of kind of what's going on in social media right now, especially for adolescents. And hmm. I don't think, I mean, I suspect she's probably, you know, in her 30s at least. Um, but she just she's really insightful about um, how that is affecting growing up. Uh, also, something that we're familiar with, the idea of clickbait YouTube journalism. There's a character in there that sort of uh, trying to create his own YouTube channel personality presence, um, and of course, because it's in Detroit, they talk about urban renewal art quite a bit. And there's the, they they go to art parties. The serial killer is an artist. Um, there's some interesting stuff going on aesthetically with that. I, I found this to be a genuinely creepy and disturbing book. I read a lot of horror. I watch a lot of horror, and it's it takes a, a a lot to to kind of jar me, and yeah. the stuff in here
1: jarred me. Um, but yeah, I read it. Don't listen to it. Okay. Yeah, it's always weird with the audio books because they're kind of like the, the two the two approaches. One is to just have a, a solid narrator yeah. just reading you the books, and then it's in, then it's the the other direction is performance. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you get that weird area where you have a good narrator, but maybe he's just trying a little too hard to do like the the female voices. In the book, or yep. you know, oh, it's, it's a weird balance it has to. There was the a, there, were, there
3: were, and I'm sure, uh, you know, our, our listeners can relate to this because they're listening to a podcast mm-hmm. right now in which they're listening to our voice voices, and there's probably things about our voices that maybe. For instance, I I know that I am accused of having vocal fry often, and that uh, that can annoy listeners sometimes, but. Uh, the, the cadence of some of the people reading this story just it just rubbed me the wrong way. Hmm. Um, there was a, the, the the woman who performed the, the adolescent girls chapters. She was gr- a great narrator, but it, she was doing it from the voice of a 13, 14-year-old girl. Uh, and it just grated on me after a while. Hmm. I guess I'm the kind of person who prefers... The audiobook where it's just a single narrator. I often prefer if it's the author themselves reading, because yeah. I feel like that uh, brings a lot to it.
1: Yeah, Neil Gaiman
3: particularly. Does oh, a fabulous yeah. job reading his own stuff. I, I could imagine that he would, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, one audiobook that I've listened to that did a very good job with the, the, the format of having multiple actors. Was the audiobook for World War Z. That was the one where I was really surprised. I felt like it was actually better than the prose. Um, They had, you know, several actors, including, uh, like, people like Henry Rollins come in and do the voices (laughs) of some of the characters that are interviewed throughout the course of that book. So the other, uh, fiction recommendation that I have is, uh, again, no surprise. It's a graphic novel. Uh, it is a book called High Crimes by Christopher Sabella and Ibrahim Mustafa. And it's a nice hardcover graphic novel collection of a 12-issue digital comic that these guys did over the last couple of years. And I just – I've loved the digital – version of it. I've been following it since they first came out with it. Um, If you've seen me on video before, you might have seen me wearing a High Crimes t-shirt, actually. It's a skull with um, two uh, climbing implements over it, sort of in the shape of mountains, uh, because this is a murder mystery that's set on Mount Everest. And the idea is that the main character is a climbing guide who helps people get up Mount Everest, but uh, also on the side, she robs the uh, bodies of people who have died on Mount Everest and then, uh, promises to return either the bodies or their property to, uh, their families who are living back home, uh, for, for a fee, you know, for a price. So she's kind of like a vulture scavenger on Mount Everest and uh the plot is that she she finds a body that is, has a connection to a government conspiracy back in the United States so this leads to you know she tries to sell the stuff it leads to a sort of cat and mouse game chasing up Mount Everest but it's a uh, meticulously researched Sibella does a really good job of uh depicting what climbing Everest is like not that i've done it but mm-hmm. it it seemed very well researched down to the equipment, the effects on your, on the human body, uh, especially at the like different sort of zones of the the mountain itself. Yeah. Uh, I did climb Mount Kinabalu when I was younger, which is, uh, in Malaysia in Borneo. And, um, it reminded me a lot of that.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I have, I know that it's, it's come up in, uh, in episodes before, uh, here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussing, um, just just what the environment is like as you as you ascend a uh, particularly high mountain and the yeah. atmospheric changes and the effects it has on the brain uh it's really fascinating stuff
3: and the character is a, a drug addict too so it's oh. interesting to see like sh- her going through uh she's jonesing really as she's traveling up the mountain because she oh, sort wow. of runs out of stuff that effect combined with the effects of of uh, the
0: environment Oh uh, that makes me wonder if people if anybody climbs mountains to get like hypoxia trips. Mm. Hmm. Sounds
1: like an, an episode. <laughs> 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 it will now. All right so now we're going to finish up the podcast here by just uh, going around and discussing what we're reading now and what we're hoping to read in the future. What's on the plate. Uh and this you know will be a, an, another good place for uh, for the listeners to say yes those are great selections or no, don't read that. That's horrible. <laughs> or, uh, or you know, or just uh, mention some things that are in the same vein. Um, so I'll start um, right now. I am just jumping back into a reread of Frank Herbert's uh, 1965 sci-fi classic Dune because <laughs> this is the the 50th anniversary of the book, and uh, and Joe and I are actually uh, planning to do a couple of episodes on the science of Dune. Yeah. Um, this and, is also on my now reading list. Yes, you're 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 currently reading it as well. So I've I've also picked up the Science of Doom, uh, edit, Dune, edited by Kevin R. Grazier, PhD, which is a collection of essays that in which uh, uh, different uh, individuals analyze the science of everything from the still suit to the sandworm uh, to um, to the consumption of, of spice and its uh, and its and its effects on the on the human mind. And then I also picked up um, a copy of the Dune Encyclopedia uh, from the 1980s, compiled by Dr. Willis E. McNelly. And this is uh, this has been long out of print, so the book the book just smells fabulous, <laughs> it mm-hmm. has that wonderful nineteen uh, eighties uh, aroma to it. And uh, this is a book I I have a lot of nostalgia for because before I read any of the Dune books, I picked this up at my local small town library and just started. Uh, going through it and just, you know, they have, it's, they have all these different encyclopedic entries about various factions, family members, individuals, technologies that, uh, that make up the Dune universe. And it's, um, just really inspiring stuff. It's not all canon because it came out before, uh, Herbert had written, uh, all of his Dune books, Mm -hmm. but, uh, but it's, it's wonderful stuff. I'm yeah. surprised
3: there isn't a revised version that is that is still in circulation given the popularity
1: of that series. You'd think. You'd think they would, uh, yeah. especially, I mean, it's still an industry of. of the Dune books are still an industry. So. You know,
0: I wonder if the internet, like having the web, oh. has really cut into stuff like fictional canon encyclopedias. Because mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I remember a lot of these things. When I was looking at this Dune encyclopedia book. I was like, oh man, I got that feeling like this is a book I would have found somewhere when I was a kid, like in a, you know, beach house or something Mm -hmm. like that, and then sat down and started flipping through it and suddenly the entire day's gone. Uh, it has that feeling because I don't know for some reason when I was a kid that I loved stuff like
1: that. Star Wars Encyclopedia. Oh, yeah. yeah. mm-hmm. I had the Star Trek. Uh, it's like I forget what it was called, but it was like a guide to the alien species of Star Trek. Oh yeah, yeah, and it was this came out like a you know next generation era. So mm-hmm. uh, each each spread had uh, you know a nice little black and white drawing of the uh, the species, and then uh, you know some very encyclopedic information about them in their home world and yeah i just i just remember pouring myself into that
3: yeah i mean i i i suppose you're right that wikipedia and like other sort of wiki uh, data entry sites have sort of taken over that place but there's still there's still something nice about holding a book like that like uh mm-hmm. i i love a reading RPG manual. <laughs> oh, yeah. Even for games that
1: I'll never play. <laughs> yeah, I'm a sucker for a monster manual. Yeah, you know? exactly. Give me a good monster manual, and I will just, I'll lose myself in it. You know, Robert's the guy to consult. I remember a while back
0: I was wondering, what kind of save do you have to throw from somebody uh trying to drive you mad mm-hmm. if they're casting a drive you mad spell? What did you say, Robert?
1: I i, I can't remember what my specific answer was, but I looked in the, the latest... Uh, Dungeon Master Guide and uh, also my uh, Call of Cthulhu book, so. Oh, I love Call of Cthulhu. It was it the D100 version? Uh, I don't. It's not the. I don't think it's the most current uh, edition.
3: Yeah, that's the the D100 is the is the older one. Okay. Um, the, I think that somebody else, another company, maybe bought it out. But Chaosium is the is the company. Yeah, and this
1: one definitely came from that, okay. that company. Yeah. That but, could be a great like workplace RPG.
0: Like you know, you get mm-hmm. pulled into the meeting room and the boss monster is about to drive you mad.
3: And yeah. You have to throw-
1: I feel anytime I'm in a long meeting, I start losing. You lose sanity. sanity. Points. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially when you're on a conference call. Oh yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Minus five sanity points right off the bat. <laughs> uh, so just and then briefly, what's on the plate for later? I I fall into the, the trap every year of just thinking more about things I want to reread that I love mm-hmm. rather than exploring new things. So so in, in, along those lines, I would love to have some recommendations from other people. But I feel like I need to reread um, R. Scott Baker's The Judging Eye and the White Luck Lawyer, that's the White Luck Lawyer, the White Luck Warrior. The White Luck Lawyer would be a different uh, novel entirely. That's
3: the new, uh, what's his name, John Graham or uh,
1: John Grisham Uh, Grisham book. Um, The White Luck Lawyer. Yeah, Yeah, actually, The White Luck Warrior, which is the second book in his second trilogy that all takes place in his uh, dark fantasy, highly philosophical uh, world of the, the second apocalypse. But he has the third book in this series coming out at some point in the next several months, Uh, hopefully, titled The Unholy Consult, so I want to make sure that I dive back into that world uh, fully. And then there are uh, a number, I feel like I probably need to finish reading Stephen King's Revival, because people keep telling me it's good. I still haven't finished that one, or or started it, rather. Uh, Yeah, it's been on my list. Yeah, I hear it has some wonderful science fiction elements in it, but I, I just need to press further along in it, I guess, and then... And then we're going to hit uh, Halloween, so I'll probably reread some uh, Legati, some King, some Lovecraft, some Clark Ashton Smith, uh, and, of course, uh, Brian McNaughton, my uh, my all-time favorite horror writer. Uh, so that's what's on the plate for me. Well, as I said, I'm also reading Dune right now,
0: and I'm loving it so far. I love the, the richness of the world, uh, how complete it feels. We were just talking the other day about how... Going back and reading Dune, I feel some elements that, uh, you see in the, the George R. R. Martin Game of Thrones universe feel right. sort of, not, not lifted from Dune, but similar to Dune in terms of, you know, all the backstabbing and these warring houses and. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a big influence on him, at least in terms of structure and,
3: I guess,
1: epicness. Yeah, yeah I feel it's, it's definitely a work that, uh, its, it's roots spread throughout, uh, genre fiction for, For decades to come for decades to follow.
0: Uh, So I'm absolutely loving it, and I can't wait to do the Science of Dune episode. But also I was reading a book when I started reading Dune uh, that I need to pick back up because I loved this one as well. It was The Secret History by Donna Tartt. Have you you all read this?
3: Yeah, I read that (laughs) a while ago. Yeah. What was it? The story with that is it came out in like the nineties, and then she didn't write another book for like twelve years or something, right? And I think Little Friend is the other book that she's come out with since
0: then. Actually, I didn't even look this up. I have no idea when this book was written. Okay. but I was, I, I thought it was fantastic so far. Yeah, the, it's good. Uh, the prose is—it's one of those books that you know. This sounds like such a reviewer's cliche, but it's very rich. Uh, meaning, sort of the opposite of minimalist or stark or bare. It's just overflowing with uh, uh, ideas and images and jokes and verisimilitudes. And so, I, I was really loving that one. It deals also with the kind of weird cult-like behavior that can sometimes arise in a you know college professor and student scenario.
3: Absolutely, I had a professor exactly. Like this, the, the, the one that was in, uh, the secret history. Yeah. And I had a sort of classroom unit that, uh, was very... W- worshipped him in a similar way and, and if I remember correctly it's been a long time since I read it but isn't he a, a Greek historian?
0: Yeah well I don't know about historian Maybe I haven't finished the book yet but okay. yeah he's, he teaches Greek and classics and mm-hmm. he talks about Greek philosophy a lot mm-hmm. and yeah. he he does these sort of like long monologues these lectures that the students just find all this crazy inspiration in so far, the book was awesome, and yeah. I'll have to go back to it once I'm finished with Dune. But then also, lined up next, I've been thinking about how I've apparently got to read some Ian m Banks, so <laughs> there we go on that. Uh, but then also, I was thinking about reading Susan Blackmore's The Meme Machine, which is a nonfiction book uh, that she wrote about mimetic theory, and Christian, you're kind of smirking. I have uh, an interesting story about this book. So I read this book...
3: Uh, early two thousands, and I loved it. Uh, it's really good. I think that, and if you're looking for sort of an explanation of Dawkins' mimetics theory, mm-hmm. this is a, a good place to start. Uh, I made the mistake of, uh, in my early twenties, taking uh, a young lady, a delightful young lady, to uh, a <laughs> Susan Blackmore presentation <laughs> as our first date. So you know. <laughs> Not, not not pretentious at all. To go, uh, do you want to go hear about memetics uh, from this British author with pink hair?
0: I love her hair.
3: Oh yeah, She's, yeah. she's, she's, she's a uh, badass.
1: She's come yeah. up in uh, in past episodes before. Right? Oh, yeah. We, we've used her work. No, she yeah, was super I've seen, cool.
0: I've seen YouTube videos of her giving like speeches and stuff. She seems yeah. really awesome in person. I've never read a book of hers. So I, so I wanted to read this also because... I've read a little bit uh, about meme theory, like you know, I read Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, uh, which came out in the 70s, and I think that was the first major exploration of meme theory. Yeah, I think Uh, right. And if, if you're not familiar with meme theory, it's the idea that there are units of cultural copying and transmission analogous to genes in living organisms, but in culture, they're they're called memes. And they're just like genes; they get copied with mutations throughout generations. Yeah,
3: I would also add to this, uh, at least from my experience in graduate school, that the the theories of memetics of Dawkins and Blackmore are heavily frowned upon. By, oh yeah, a by, lot of people a lot of people hate them. Yeah, they they don't feel like it has any uh, uh, quantitative uh, value. Yep. But I've heard that, too. I, I I still think that they're interesting. And, in fact, we did a, a What's a Meme episode for Brain Stuff that our colleague Jonathan Strickland performed. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you want just like a short
0: five-minute primer on memetics, go find that. Yeah, of course. Then again, one thing I will say is that it seems like a lot of the criticisms of memetics that I've heard, now I'm sure there are some very good criticisms, some of the ones I've heard – kind of rang hollow to me and also Mm -hmm. seemed like they were coming from people who personally disliked the people who promote meme theory. Yeah, So, I don't know what, what the deal with that is, but I'll see once I read the book.
3: Well, I am currently reading a book called Devils and Demons that I picked up at our local used bookstore, The Book Nook. Uh, uh-huh. It is a collection of short stories, all about hell, demons, and Satan, uh, <laughs> that are selected by a guy named Marvin Kay. And this book was published in 1987. Um, some of it is, is uh, isn't really my thing. Some of it's not for me. Uh, but there have so far been some uh, good stories I've read in here. Paula Volsky wrote a story called "The Tendency of Mister Eeks." Uh, there's a great Robert Block story in here called Enoch, if you haven't read that I haven't before. I've read that one, but he's yeah.
1: he's he's a,
3: a legend. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. And then this book led me down the rabbit hole to really get into Arthur Macon, ah, uh, yeah. because I've only read a little bit of his stuff before. but There's a story in here called The Novel of the White Powder by him, which led me to, again, going on to Amazon. It turns out that Amazon has these uh collections of books like like Macon's work. You can buy like 25 of his stories for 99 cents. So I got this collection and uh over this th- this last week I actually just read The Great God Pan. Have you guys read yes, this before? Yes, That is an an incredibly potent and creepy tale. Yeah, it's a novella that he wrote uh first was published in 1890 and it is you know it's probably like one of the uh unsung Stories of the history of horror literature. Uh, I'd never heard of it until, until just the last, you know, maybe two or three weeks, but it's, it's hugely influential. Uh, Lovecraft called it, uh, he said, no one could begin to describe the cumulative suspense and ultimate horror with which every paragraph abounds in that story. And Stephen King said, he thinks it's one of the best horror stories ever written, maybe the best in the English language. Hmm. I really enjoyed it. Uh, wow! I'll awesome so check that out. I'm I'm thoroughly uh, I'm planning to 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 really take a deep dive into Arthur Macon's material, and then uh, what I've got on the plate for later, probably after I read all that Macon stuff. Although I might uh, d- dabble in this stuff back and forth. A friend of mine recommended this book uh, by a guy named Laird Barron, who is another sort of weird fiction horror author, uh, and this is a collection of his short stories called Occultation. Mm. And uh, all I know about this guy is he's won a bunch of awards. He's a former Iditarod racer. And uh, (laughs) my friend, who is a a horror writer, just just sings his praises, loves his stuff. Yeah,
1: this is an author that keeps coming up in um, at at least automated recommendations for me at things like Amazon. And, and of course, his name stands out so much. Yeah. uh, uh, Yeah, I, I probably need to check out some of his work as well. I. Like I say, I keep falling into the habit of rereading things uh, mm-hmm. while I should really branch out and explore some, some more contemporary horror authors. Well, I can let you borrow this when I am done with
3: it. I'm, I, I'm lo- really looking forward to the idea of bouncing back and forth between a guy who's contemporary like this and a guy who was alive over 100 years ago, really kind of writing similar stuff uh, with Arthur, Macon. mm-hmm. uh, Arthur Macon's uh, kind of huge uh, collection of short stories.
0: Yeah, I feel like you guys are really showing me up in terms of appropriately weird stuff here. I'm gonna to have to catch up for next year. Oh no! <laughs> it's I mean, gonna be it's gonna be all sci-fi and demons for 365 I, <laughs> days. That, that, that's gonna heavily
3: influence the show. I think I'm already weighing us in, in the demon category, maybe a little bit too much. But the uh, I mean uh, the that John Murray star, Spear book sounds really interesting, and I've never heard of. Uh, is it Danilo Kiss? Is that how Quiche,
0: you? A it? Okay. Well, there's a K I S and there's the little carrot over the S. So I yeah. think the Serbo-Croatian way of saying that uh, would be quiche, but yeah, I apologize if that is wrong. I believe that sounds appropriately weird. The Encyclopedia of the Dead. Yeah.
1: Now, um, Arthur Machen and the uh, the Great God Pan and all that. I think I, I think I, rem- I originally saw reference to it in uh, one of Lovecraft's uh, essays about supernatural and uh, yeah. That and quote literature.
3: that I just read from was mm-hmm. from Lovecraft's book. Uh, is it Supernatural Literature? literature and horror or supernatural horror in literature it's a short nonfiction book that i believe he put this is all off the top of my head but i believe Mm -hmm. that lovecraft compiled it from letters that he shared with people like robert block yeah uh, who were sort of in his circle of horror writer fans and he sort of came up with this guide of how how to write horror literature yeah, yeah, and that's where it was mentioned that uh, where I pulled that quote from at least. So maybe that's where you saw it.
1: Yeah, I also was turned on to a number of like old classic uh, and, and, and horror and pulp writers. Uh, I used to go to a a, a wrestling message board, uh-huh. and one of the contributors <laughs> there was this guy. It was this guy John Pellin who uh, who. Is a horror writer and editor. Um, do a search for his name, you'll see uh, you know various anthologies he's edited. He's I think he's worked with Edward Lee okay. on a few different books, and uh, and he was he has an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, of horror literature. So he turned me on to a number of key authors that I've grown to to just completely adore like Michael Shea. Yeah, Michael
3: Shea actually wrote the introduction to that Layered Baron book that I'm about to read. Yeah, and uh, I I also thought of you as I was flipping through this last night and reading all the sort of in praise of Layered Baron stuff at the beginning because he got a a write-up from S.T. Joshi in here. Oh, yeah, who's been on the show. You had Mm -hmm. S.T. Joshi on the show, yeah. Yeah, who's sort of, for for those of you who don't know, S.T. Joshi is, I guess, like the, the Lovecraft
1: scholar? Yeah, yeah, he's
3: known as the scholar of sort of weird fiction.
1: Yeah, and if Michael Shea uh, recommends this guy, all the more reason. Shea was, was just brilliant, and he sadly passed in the, in the last year or so. But uh, his, particularly his, he, he wrote science fiction, fantasy, and horror, but his, his dark fantasy work, uh, particularly his, his Niphthaleen tales, are just beautiful, just, just phenomenal. Uh, most of them deal with journeys into a into a, a sub into the sub worlds, which are kind of a, a fantasy, a fantastic Dante-esque um, underworld, uh, except with, with just concentric layers of. Of awfulness and wonder, and, and he, yeah, he. That man had a gift. So and, uh, that's yet another person I'm adding just to the piece of paper. Just between the
3: three <laughs> of us talking, I have a list here of probably ten different things I need to read. But I'm still curious of what the audience is going to recommend Indeed. to us after hearing of what we're what we would recommend to them, what we're reading right now, and what we're going to read next. That's right.
1: So hey, in the meantime, head on over to stepofblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find. All the podcast episodes, all the videos, all the blog posts, and the landing page for this episode, again, will feature uh, all the titles and authors that we've mentioned here uh, with appropriate links out uh, to places you can buy them.
0: And if you want to let us know what books you recommend we read, and uh, maybe if we really like them, we'll repeat them back out to our audience and spread your ideas throughout the population, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. No hidden fees. No surprises. No. Really? What are you waiting for?
1: Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.
2: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.